This is God's holy word from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is a reading of God's word. Dennis, you'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together today, this morning, to bring you the glory and honor you are due. We rejoice, Lord, in your word. By your word, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is it that is in it. Lord, you created man in your own image. By your own hands from the dust of the earth, you created us and breathed life into us and said it was very good. We give joy, Lord, in knowing that you are our creator. You are awesome in your majesty. We can see you in the mountains, in the plains, and in the seas. How majestic is your name. Lord God, as we live this life, walk through the trials and tribulations, Lord, you go before us. You are beside us. You hold us up as we walk and try to live in a way that will bring glory and honor to you. We do have struggles, but we have the joy of knowing that our, that your son, the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, gave us eternal life through his sacrifice on the cross. And we find joy in that. Lord, we give you this day and ask, Lord, that through our worship and our words that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able to stand during our singing, uh, feel free. Let's join in. God Almighty reigns. 
the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is the reason we can rejoice always. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fills his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy veil, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, 
give you a heart of thankfulness, nothing will. As we continue. My heart is filled with thankfulness to Him who bore my Thank you. 
Please join me. Heavenly Father, we have all come up against storms and trials, but it always remains that you are in control. My sister and I have a thing we say to each other, find the joy. And sometimes that's so hard, Lord. It's so hard to find the joy in a day so full of tears or fear. But Lord, you are steadfast in your love. You are always there. You lift us up when we can't even find a way. And you show us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for showing us. Thank you for guiding our footsteps, for being all those words that come out of our mouth to build up and not to put down, Lord. Lord, help us to be that light in this fallen world, Lord. Help us to be that joy when someone needs it so desperately. Help us to always remember, Lord, that no matter what and no matter where, you are in control. 
Let us rejoice in the gift that you have given us, the gift of your Son and the life that we now have because of his death and resurrection. Lord, please be with all those who are sick and can't be here. Build them up, Lord, and fill them with hope and peace. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Jason. Am I on? Are we? I was going to ask Jason. Whoa. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to take your stand as well, Jason, if you don't mind. I was going to ask you how to. Yeah, I promise I won't mess it up too bad. Well, this has been. Whoa, that's a little loud for me anyway. This has been a most interesting couple of weeks. Um, and I'll tell you right off the bat so you know, and you won't have bigger expectations of me than you should, um, which maybe that's just an exaggeration of my part anyway. Maybe you don't have big expectations. Um, when it was decided um, this week that Dan was continuing to be too ill uh, to be among us. That was Wednesday um, when we made the decision that he could not preach today. Now, normally when I fill in for him, I have a couple of weeks' notice, and I rarely speak in front of anyone unless I've had at least a week um, to think through, pray, and prepare. I had two days. On Saturday, I did a funeral for a friend, um, and preached at that with uh, only one or two among them that were believers. That was an interesting experience, but at least God gave me the courage and the words to share with them the truth of the gospel. So they can't go away saying they didn't know or at least hear the truth. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. Um, but that also limited the amount of time that I would normally put into preparation. So why am I doing all this? Because I really am nervous this morning. Much so more than I normally am when I come before you. Um, and I just feel in my soul, however, that this message is for us today. And I do believe though my exegesis may not be as thorough as it normally is, that these words have been given to me and I have been commanded by the Lord to speak them to you today. That's not arrogance. That's humility. I am humbled by the Master and his willingness to share with me this vessel, broken and flawed as I am, truth. To be shared with you. I'm going to preach from a book of the Bible I have never once preached from. I am preaching from a book that I have never even taught a class in. There are not many other books of the Bible that I can say that about. This is a book that I think probably more than most books of God's Word 
has the potential and has, in fact, caused a great deal of controversy among believers. And so I am extra concerned that you listen carefully to what I have to say and not presuppose that you know my position on a particular subject, which is eschatology, the study of the future. Because by the time I'm done, you still won't know. I'm not here to share that with you. Revelation 19 is the chapter that I am going to use as reference. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then we are going to focus in on verses 6 through 16. But let me read these verses. This is the word of the Lord. After this, and the this is the fall of the city of Babylon, the great whore. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all his servants who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for our Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me pray. Where does one begin, Father, to speak of these things? The only place I know to begin is to say to you, please, Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Most holy and righteous King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. One of the reasons I've never taught or preached from this book is because basically I'm a coward. Um, I, I don't want to be the source of controversy. I am often the source of controversy, as most of you know. But it's not a position I ever want or seek after. But I will speak the truth even if it means you will not speak to me. I believe that God's word is truth. There is no other source of truth. And I will rely upon his word when I will not rely upon the words of anyone else. That doesn't mean I don't listen to others. It just means that nobody gets that position in my heart. Nobody not even my beloved brother Dan, who I cherish deeply. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennialist, dispensational, covenantal, those are the arguments about this book. But what I found most curious is what we forget is that it is prophecy and all of prophecy always has both a future fulfillment and a current mandate. We seem ready to spend our time trying to know times and seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. And he's also made it clear it's not for us to know. That's Acts 1-7. When the apostles asked him, Will you restore the kingdom now? And he says, it's none of your business. You don't get to know. What you have is work to do. And we often get in, entangled in speculations that really, I'm not sure what the prophet is. Let me read to you a warning that Paul gave Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, the reason he's giving this warning, 
is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without either understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I want to give you an example from our own community from this last week. There was a discussion floating around on social media, um, and many who are associated either directly or indirectly with our fellowship were involved in this discussion. And it all centered around Roman, uh, Revelation 18.23 in a single word, the word sorcery. And the person had put out on there that Christians basically needed to really wake up and repent because they weren't paying attention to this word. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson here, a very small one. The actual Greek word there translated sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia. Now, you can guess what the English word is, right? Pharmacy. But our word pharmacy is an etymological derivative. Okay? That just means that it's grown out of. It is not the way the author of Revelation used the word. It's very important. And his assertion was that we should not be vaccinated because of this word. And that Christians are blindly accepting the mark of the beast if they are vaccinated. To be honest, my first and very snarky response was, I wonder if he's ever taken Tylenol. You see, the etymology of a single word is a very poor foundation upon which to build an eschatology, that is, a study of the future, or a theology, the study of God, or a doctrinal stand, a practice for today. Very shaky ground, and I want to illustrate that with one more thing, and then I'm going to move away from this. In English, we have the word music. Do you know what its etymology is? It comes from the Greek word musica. Now, that word was used to describe the goddesses of music. They were called muses, the goddesses of dance, the goddesses of art, the goddesses of poetry. So, using the logic that was used with the word pharmakia, we should abandon music because it's based on idolatry and false teaching. Now, surely you see the foolishness in that. It just doesn't work. The other thing that I am struck by as I study is that there are a lot of people who seem to know exactly what's going to happen when, where, and why. And yet, I would remind all of us that the scribes, the rabbis, the Masorites, the Levites, 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all studied for hundreds of years the entire Torah, the writings, and the prophecies from Genesis to Malachi. And they all missed the vital truth. And here it is. Jesus himself said it. John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. They've studied these words. They know these words. They were looking for Messiah and they wanted to know earnestly, sincerely. They studied the who, the when, the where, the why, the how. And they never got it. Volumes and volumes were written and taught trying to discern who that Messiah would be. And in fact, even if there would be a Messiah, because in Jewish circles that was and still is somewhat of a refuted truth. You see, they simply could not concede by all of their study that a Messiah would come as the God-man. Born of a virgin, born a lowly birth, die and be resurrected. Even though all of the Old Testament screams with that truth. And I can say that because I'm on this side. You see, fulfillment makes prophecy much easier to understand. How is it possible to spend that many years and that much time and that much effort by so many people and still miss the truth? I want to remind you of an incident that occurred after Jesus' resurrection. If you will remember, there were two men, and they were traveling to Emmaus. You remember this story? Who comes alongside them? Did they know it? In fact, he spends hours walking beside them and talking to them, and they haven't a clue who he is. Until what? until he decides to reveal to them who he is. You and I are blind to our blindness until God gives light. Let's quit pretending otherwise. Acts 7-1 again, I just... Send you back to Acts 7-1. It's not for us to know. Times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It isn't for us to know. But, really, who doesn't like a good mystery? I do. Mary and I like mysteries a lot. And so I understand the attraction. I do understand it. Just keep in mind Paul's warning in 1 Timothy. Don't speak as though you really understand. 
either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, steer clear. Anyone must be aware and wary of such assertions. But you know what? I have a greater concern. In trying to understand and maybe even predict the future through a study of Revelation, we lose sight very quickly of really what we are supposed to be doing right now in our moment in time. And what is that? Let me look again with you here at verse 7 of 19. And the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There is great truth in there. What are we supposed to be doing? Righteous deeds. Preparing for the bridegroom's entrance. Getting ready instead of wondering when he's coming. I want to read again verses 6 through 8 for you. And I want you as I read for you to listen to the mood. And tell me whether the mood is one of gloom, dare, despair, terror, defeat, fear. Or is the mood one of joy, exaltation, rejoicing, singing, and shopping. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. He has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now tell me, what's the mood? Fear? Trembling? Terror? No. It's exuberant joy and exaltation. There's no fear in any of those words. So why are we so fearful? I can tell you why, for sure, this crowd shouting hallelujah is not fearful. Because their eyes are on the bridegroom. So why are we so terrified in our cultural moment? And people, we are terrified. Let's be honest with each other. Could it be that we are terrified because our ears are filled with the terrors happening all around the world and that the certainty of our own national identity is crumbling before our very eyes? Could that be the reason? Could it also be that our ears are not open to these shouts of victory? 
Could it be that the cultural moment has captured our attention and our imagination to the point where we're forgetting who the ultimate victor is? Have we forgotten the one who is robed in garments dipped in blood, in whose hand is the rod of iron, and in whose mouth is the sharp sword, which is his word? Have we forgotten that that picture of Christ and of God is the one who will deal with all of this malaise in the blink of an eye? And the beast falls. Not after a long battle. Read on in 19. The armies are raised. The battle cry. The supper is prepared. And in verse 20, after the beast has gathered all of his armies and is ready for battle, what are the next words in verse 20? And the beast was captured. Not a big struggle there. God is able. God is capable. God is responsible for that. We are responsible. Or something else. And we sometimes forget that and get confused about whose responsibility is whose. I'll be honest, it really is a growing concern of mine as a shepherd of this little flock. He, God, the Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords, has the battle well in hand. He's not surprised. He isn't unprepared. He planned all that is now being revealed. We have no need to worry or to be angry. Hell cannot stand. It will not stand. We, we are the bride of Christ. We, the church of believers throughout all of time, Every nation, every tongue, we are the bride of Christ. I fear that the reason we fear is because we're not ready for the day of the bridegroom's arrival. So, let's get ready. And let's do it quickly. Our responsibilities are simple. We must wash. In a Jewish wedding ceremony, there is something called a mikvah. It is a ritual bath in which generally the bride descends. Now, some modern Jewish traditions have the groom doing the same thing. But in historic Hebrew weddings, the bride descends into a mikvah for a um, bath. And she's accompanied by her bridemaids and her mother and her future mother-in-law. And she washes herself clean. What are we to wash in? Revelation 7.14 They have washed their robes and made them white in 
the blood of the Lamb. There is no other medium for us to wash in. The blood of Christ alone cleanses our sin. There is no other source. There is no other hope. There is no other help. Nothing washes away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we are to dress. Fine linen. White, pure, and bright. But this dress must be woven. It must be woven thread by thread. Notice, it was granted to her, in verse 8, to, be, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Fine linen. Fine linen. That means closely woven, tightly woven. Of what? The threads that each and every single one of us must spin. Our righteous deeds. What are these righteous deeds? I'm going to name just a few. I'm going to name basically three for you. First is love for your neighbor. This isn't a complicated truth. Luke 10, 29 to 37. But he, desiring to justify himself, remember this is the, the, the uh, Pharisee came to, who is my neighbor? He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the man attacked and left to die on the road. And religious people come by and cross to the other side and never do anything. And then a Samaritan man comes by. And he not only takes the man up, dresses his wounds, but he takes him into town. He puts him up in an inn and he pays for his sustenance and his residence for a period of time until he can be healed. Jesus made it very clear. <laughs> Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy that was questioning him said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Love for our neighbor. Whose wounds are you binding up? Whose wounds am I binding up? Whose wounds am I even aware of? Romans 13.10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I could enumerate a thousand different things you could do to love your neighbor. And maybe none of them would apply to you at this moment. Loving your neighbor is something you must be attentive to. It must be something you're willing to give for. It must be something you're willing to lay your own time and energy and efforts on the altar for. What are you spending your time on? What am I spending my time on? That's the question that comes to my mind. 
What has captured my imagination and my attention? Is it love of my neighbor? Do I keep that in perspective? Understanding that the working out of that love spins the thread of the fine linen the church will wear at the wedding feast of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And then there is love of our enemies. A whole lot easier to love that neighbor than to love the neighbor that hates you. Love our enemies. But I want to remind you, that is precisely what Jesus Christ did for you and I. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were shouting, crucify him, Christ gave his life without a word of self-defense. Luke 6, 35 to 36, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. I have a kind of a feeling that that particular thread is a little thicker than maybe some of the others. Maybe it's more like yarn. I don't know. I'm just musing. For great is your reward in heaven. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And then Matthew 5.46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And then there is a third deed of righteousness. And that is to love the brethren. Now we sometimes think this is an easy one. Um, well, let me just tell you, for this man, it's not easy. I struggle with this often. And I am faced with the truth that my own evil heart loves me more than it does you. And so I am also faced with the need to cry out to Christ regularly and say, God, purify my heart. Give me the love for this brethren that you have. Show me how to lay down my life and then give me the courage to do it for this brethren. 1 Peter 1, 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So we are to wash and we are to dress and the dress we are to wear must be woven of the righteous deeds. But there is another thing we need to do. Watch. And prepare. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. 
the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, Notice it was the wise, not the cruel and mean and ugly. The wise said, Since there's not, there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other versions came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, truly, I do not know you. And then Jesus' word, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch. Are our lamps trimmed and are our oil containers full? Here's an aside note. I don't see any reference in here in this passage that says that I need to figure out when the bridegroom's going to arrive. Do you think that's by accident? What I am told is to be ready. Are our lamps trimmed and full of oil? Are we the lights of the world that we are commanded to be? Philippians 2, 14 to 16. This one strikes me hard. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of truth. Do we expect his coming at any hour, at any moment, of any day? So are we prepared? Are we watching and listening for his call? And are we ready the moment he calls? to join with the great throng who no man can number? And are we ready to sing an excited expectation of the arrival of the bridegroom and start that wedding feast? Parents, are you training up your children to recognize the true enemy? Their own evil hearts. Or are you distracted by the masqueraders? the politicians, the cultural pundits, Satan and his minions. Where's your focus as parents? EBC, are we ready to defend the word of God? Not by might, nor by power. Not by the sword or your concealed carry, but by his spirit, says
says the Lord in Zechariah. Is his word in our mouth? Are our deeds done for his glory and his glory alone? And are we willing to die? Not with arms raised in rebellion. I'm going to repeat that. Not with arms raised in rebellion against human authority. Heads bowed in humble submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, come what may. Individually, are we discipling others in a way that their faith is founded firmly on the unshakable word of God? Is my faith founded upon the unshakable word of God? Am I working to wash the body of Christ in the blood of Christ through his word? Or do we lean too heavily upon internet prophets, Facebook conspiracists, and TikTok ding-dongs? Why do we have so little confidence in he who rules with a rod of iron and carries the sword of the Spirit in his mouth? He has already dealt with the forces of evil. It's just for us to wait for the wedding day. Will we busy ourselves preparing ourselves for the wedding and the spinning of the garments and being pure and white and bright? Or are we worrying about what's next? How easily, how quickly we are distracted by the things of this world. Let us instead focus on the commands we have been given. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord laid that on our heart as a church nearly 12 years ago. Are we going and making disciples, not converts, disciples, Christ will take care of the converts. Come when the bridegroom says come, clothed in white garments. Are we ready to come? I've asked some really hard questions, and I hope penetrating questions this morning, and I meant them to be penetrating, as they are penetrating for me. But I want you to understand something. I've not lost sight of the fact that this community of believers has woven some beautiful fine linen. We are not without spinning. We need to up our production. That's what we need. We are not without fine linen. All right, I really am going to close sometime here. Um, but I have a quote, and I found this profoundly beautiful and reassuringly simple, much simpler than all that I've said this morning. This comes from a Jewish woman who is an authority on Torah. 
She's written a commentary. The commentary is specifically for Jewish women. But this particular passage struck me profoundly. I I won't share the whole thing with you, but I want to share this last couple of phrases from this particular passage. Messy world. Angry, idolatrous world. Tired, hungry, sick, and sorry world. But if we could lift the sooty, splattered veil, we might see this thing between God and his church or God and Israel is not that we are in covenant. It is that we are in love. Every day, a voice comes forth from Christ, the bridegroom, and begs our answer. Would you be willing to spend your life with me? And the bride answers, yes, hallelujah. I'm grateful that the day of the Lord has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we never lose sight of the bridegroom. May we never lose sight of our need to know you above every other thing. Strengthen our hands for the weaving. Teach us to weave well. Make us useful for the kingdom and your glory. In the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let's stand.